Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information the podcast playground Hooray! well i'm buzz knight and welcome to another nashville edition of taking a walk nashville is all about the artistry of the song the storytelling the emotion and there's one man who has his finger on the pulse of the uh, songwriting community Bart Herbison is the executive director of the Nashville Songwriters Association International, the world's largest not-for-profit songwriters trade association. The association serves aspiring and professional songwriters in all genres of music and also owns the amazing Bluebird Cafe. Bart, welcome to Taking a Walk. Thank you. I was excited about this, but I doubly excited when a couple of old radio dogs showed up in here. I'm surprised we got to the podcast. I loved our visit before this started, man. So, yeah, because I'm an old radio dog myself. Radio dogs. WTPR, Paris, Tennessee. We treat people right. So I started there when I was 16 <laughs> years old in 1973. Why don't you do a legal ID for the station? Um, I'll do my favorite station because I hated our call letters. 56 WHBQ <laughs> Memphis, you know. So I love, I still love those call letters. Now. Oh, we it. did turn our FM to KQ 105, which was a lot hipper, and we went pop. So, do you remember what song hooked you and made you forever a fan? Absolutely. Of music? Uh, between four and five years old, my late uncle Billy Pullen calls me in and called me Bart. He says, "Sit down." And he and to this day, I have a tattoo on my left shoulder, TCB with a lightning bolt. 
because my first record was That's When Your Heartaches Began by Elvis Presley. And it literally, between four and five, changed my life. That was it. And fast forward, uh, later on, starting with that DJ role, I gravitated toward the songwriters. Everybody read the liner notes, but I read who wrote the songs. And it just so happened a guy my same age coming up became a very famous songwriter. Part of the reason it led me to this place. Yeah. Jimmy Stewart was his name. Wow. Not that Jimmy Stewart, but Brotherly Love, Keith Whitley and Earl Thomas Conley, Toby Keith's A Little Less Talk, A Lot More Action, those kinds of things. And and hand in hand, we're brothers to this day. And that's how I knew about songwriting. That's why I cared. And I started hanging out with songwriters when I still worked on Capitol Hill. And if I could be a songwriter, I wouldn't be on this podcast. I'm a great editor of songs, but the page is blank as a starting point for me. So I've always managed to be around it somehow. And it goes back to that Elvis song, WTPR, and Jimmy Allen Stewart. Thank God. I was told, I don't remember this actually happening in my life, but it was something my my late mom told me about, that uh, uh, we were in church one Sunday, and I think I was two years old, and... There's a song by Fabian called Turn Me Loose that apparently I started singing in church, and uh, the rest is history. And the next day, your hair was swooped back, too, wasn't it? (laughs) You had the duck tail. Or my father cut it all off, which is a whole other uh, psychosis podcast (laughs) that we don't have to get into uh, right now. So, Bart, talk about the, uh, the many important tiers of advocacy work that uh, NSAI does. Well, let's go back 55 years and a guy named Eddie Miller, the great country standard, please release me and let me go. And Eddie thought there needed to be a voice for this profession. There were only 80 songwriters total, 80 in this entire town. And he convinced 41 others to really risk their career because even folks within the industry didn't want to see the songwriters organized. But they picked a great issue, which was to get the songwriters' names on records. It happened sometimes, but it was not an industry process, pro, um, you know, model. And it took us four years, mainly making sure the publishers could get the label copy over there quick enough. Now it takes five years to get a song's cut. Back then it could be five days. And in 1971, we announced that every major American label would put the songwriters' names on the record. And it's really what empowered this group to go forward. So the advocacy all stemmed from that. Fast forward recently, we there are two big things. The first was in 2018. It was called the Music Modernization Act. And we passed it unanimously, and it was typically copyrights. you got to have agreement on, because one senator can stop a bill. And, and it's very hard, but every 15 or 20 years, because of that reason, we advance the cause a little bit. The Music Modernization Act took us three or four steps forward. <clears throat> it changed the rules for how our rates get set. So fast forward, we were in a trial called the Copyright Royalty Board Phono Records 3. It's a complicated name, but it decided one of the two royalty songwriters get. They get a performance royalty when their songs are performed live or on Spotify or radio or TV. Then they get what amounts to a sales royalty called a mechanical royalty. And that's what these judges were setting. And so it was an ugly trial. The National Music Publishers and NSAI against. 
Apple, Amazon, Pandora, Spotify, and Google. It drug out, but we managed to win the largest pay raise in history, 43.8%. And if people wonder why that's important, before this, you literally could stream your song 35 million times. Most songs are co-written, so you have a publisher, you own a quarter of the copyright. Your 25% for 35 million streams was $185. We've advanced that forward. What we've just done will advance it forward even more. Apple just raised its price this week as we taped this podcast, which we love because ours is a percentage. So we automatically today get 15.1% of that new dollar. It will grow in the future. The growth of streaming is what we're really looking at now. And if it keeps going like we're going, I think songwriters can add a zero to what they've seen and maybe not too far down the road a couple. It doesn't completely fix the problem because most of their money still comes from broadcast radio, but it's way better than we were doing a few years ago. And so we won that trial and then we negotiated a settlement because another trial had already started because that one had been appealed. It drug on for eight years. The good news is we're about to put both those to bed, number one. Number two, songwriters will get arrearage payments back many to the mid months of 2020 because that's when the appeal happened and we went back to the old rate. But I'm tired of fighting the streaming services. And there's so many things we want to work together to do. And it's awfully hard to do when you've got a guy on each other's head. Garrett Levin runs the Digital Media Association. I sent him a text yesterday about us applauding Apple, raising their prices. I'm really looking forward to working together to grow streaming and and see how we can even compensate songwriters outside the normal box. It is such a complex topic. I spent some time uh, with uh, working on behalf of the National Association of Broadcasters back in, I believe it was 2014, maybe, uh, with regard to the sound exchange and the whole, you know, Mm-hmm. CRB process. I, I didn't have to officially testify, but I did go on record, you know, and I was professing what radio's piece of this was on behalf of artists and community and all of this. And this is before the growth of streaming really for radio had really uh, occurred. Um, and then on this podcast, um, a gentleman named Larry Miller, who teaches at uh, NYU that you may know, who also is very active in this conversation as well, uh, he tried to boil it down uh, because it's complex, as you know. Um, so boil this down. Are artists and songwriters getting the fairest shake still that they can? Well. You opened up a, an onion, and there's so many layers. I'll try to boil it down, but I got to let's go back to history for a moment. <clears throat> so, for the most part, there is an exception to this. Songwriters' rates are set by the government, where the record labels set royalties for the most part, except a performance royalty from streaming. They negotiate all those in the free market. So when we started all this trial stuff back in 05 or so, the disparity between what the songwriter and music publisher got from a stream and a record label was 17 to 1. 
Record labels got 1,700% more than us. With some negotiations, a couple of trials, and this most recent win, depending on which service, because they pay different amounts to the labels, they negotiate different amounts, it's down to two to one or three to one. So the royalty you were talking about, let me, let me try to do it this way in one minute. Record labels negotiate their mechanical royalty, their sales royalty, and they go to a trial for their performance royalty. The artist, what they get from the labels, negotiated with the label. That performance royalty from radio you were talking about that the labels want is not one that would go to a songwriter. It would go to the artist only. Songwriters, on the other hand, also have the same two royalties, performance and mechanical royalties, but our rates are set by the government. That's why we just went through these two trials. So the, the, the battle will be continuing on, obviously. Well, look, the streaming services will tell you there's not enough money to go around. I, I just fundamentally reject that. They pay somewhere between, you know, with less than 70, maybe a little more percent out of the dollar. Now, that sounds like there's not much left. And if you're the first-year streaming company 15 years ago and you only earned $10 million, that's valid. You don't have a lot to reinvest in the company, which is why we have tiers. If you're a new streaming service, you get some breaks, or at least you did historically. Um, but if you're making $30 billion a year, what's 30% of that? There's a lot of money left over to share with us with the labels, because it's always been if we get more, the labels will get less. We've gotten more, and the labels have not taken one penny less, and I'm proud of that. And the services can earn more, and also raise your prices. The first CD I ever bought was $19.99. Apple just went from $9.99 to $10.99. If they went to $12.99 and the other streaming services, we're not even having this conversation. And back to the radio side of things, radio is facing some economic challenges, clearly. And, um, you know, there's a lot of debate, certainly, in terms of with the increase in streaming with radio, that radio should be paying more as well. Well, look, there's a couple debates on that front. The labels want a performance royalty from radio that they've never paid them. So that's one avenue. Then ASCAP and BMI, that's on the, the record label artist side. On the songwriter side, ASCAP and BMI are in a rate proceeding telling radio they need to pay more. And, and while we represent songwriters, those fights are being led by other people. So ASCAP and BMI are in the trial against broadcasters to earn more. But a completely different topic is a new royalty that's never been paid from radio to the artists and writers. That's what you were working on. It's a lot. It's, and I don't know that I helped the cause any, but there's a lot of layers. I'm going to do this in 30 seconds. There's two. When you listen to a song, there's two copyrights. There's the song, and then there's the record that somebody makes of that song. On the first one, there's two royalty streams, a performance and a mechanical for the songwriters. On the label side, there's also a performance and mechanical royalty, but they don't get that performance royalty from radio. 
that's where all this starts and then it, there's a lot of tributaries downstream but it starts with the fact that most people don't know there's a copyright on the song and you have to go get a second copyright on the record you make from that song so if Taylor Swift writes Red there's a songwriter copyright but even though she records her own song there's an artist copyright for her version of that song and that's where the complication just begins <laughs> well uh I would say I'm a little more clarified on some of the issues, but maybe I'm also confused on some of them as, as well. But uh, thank you for for taking that on. Sure. It's noble. <laughs> it's probably uh, it feels sometimes uh, uh, like a, uh, a futile uh, battle. There's a smartphone laying over here beside me that just turned 11 in August. Let's put that in context. It's a brave new world. We're all trying to figure out, you know, it, we, we end up in this moment where we vilify each other. And that's why I'm glad we can finally have this space where we're not in a trial against the streaming companies. I personally believe this will all get worked out. There's, there's, I, I did a mental exercise a few years ago. And let's use Gutenberg in the printing press. There's three phases of creativity in its distribution. Number one, we're handwriting the Bible. It takes forever. But phase two is somebody invents a printing press. But it's still archaic. You've got to put every little letter of type in there. You've got to scroll the ink across it. You've got to print one page, turn it over, let it dry, print the other page later. You've got to bind them by hand. But you're still producing 2,000% more Bibles. That's all phase one. Phase two is somebody improves the printing press. Now you can just electronically set the type, print both pages, shoot them out, stapled Bible, stack them up in the corner a million an hour. We're somewhere between that and this phase, phase three. Then it's not about the printing press anymore. It's who owns the rights to the book they're printing. And we see radio and streaming companies integrating. We see streaming companies getting into the publisher record business. And I'm hoping we're at a point now where we can all see that there are myriad interests and find the right balance. We're 11 years into the real digital era with smartphones. So we got a ways to go, but I'm looking forward to, at least on the songwriter side, the next conversation of how we can actually work together. Okay, now I feel better. Yeah. So I, do. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure, but now I definitely feel better. We'll get there, but we're in this weird moment. You know, songwriters were used to, most of the songwriters, when I took this job in 1997, they'd get a big hit single, which is big radio money. It's six figures your share. But that paid for the house in college. You'd get maybe a couple of those in your career. Some got more. You made a living on album cuts, Buzz. There's no more albums. There's no more album cut doesn't pay anything. So we're back to what it was in the 20s, 30s, 40s, up until about the 50s. We're in a singles market again. Way less opportunities for songwriters. Songwriters don't get to sell merch. They don't have concert tickets. They depend on these measly royalties. And the streaming supplants radio, we had to get what we've gotten. It still doesn't solve the problem for this generation, but I think a decade down the road, if streaming grows like we think it will, we've changed the game for the future generation of writers. So when you see a, uh, a uh, songwriter walk in, um, 
wild-eyed with enthusiasm. What's the first piece of advice you can give? Well, the first thing we do is ask a question. What's your goal? And there's really three. I want to have commercial success, publishing deal, record deal. That's one. And many of them tell us that. I'm an indie. I don't want a record deal. I don't want a publisher. I just want to meet with other writers, write better songs for my audience. And then a lot of our members, three, are hobbyists. They've written songs since childhood. They spend a lot of money on it. They burn their CDs. They put them online. They perform locally. But they've got great day jobs. They're not going to quit to go pursue this dream. So it depends on which one. But most of the people say they want commercial success. And we sit them down and give them something called the reality check. This is hard. It's not about how good your song is. That's just the starting point. And we put them through a whole litany of things. And... Some listen, some don't. But if you take our advice, it helps you navigate. This is hard, man. And it's talent, but part of it's just luck. Put it in perspective. There will be more new starters for the Tennessee Titans this year, there have been, than people that get a record deal with the necessary money behind it to succeed. Wow. Now, you think about that. Wow. Probably 15 or 20 new Titans, and there's less than that that will really new artists that are going to emerge from all this. Same with songwriters. So it's tough. And we try to help them navigate their dreams, you know. With this intense appreciation, though, about history. Of course. And it starts with this building. We're in a place called the Music Mill. Love to tell this story. There was a guy making radio jingles. His name was Harold Shedd. Harold thought, well, I can make a record. What was his last name? Harold Shedd, S-H-E-D-D. He needs to be in the Country Music Hall of Fame, throwing that out there. (laughs) So Harold kind of leverages his house and everything he's got and signs this bar band named Young Country. And... They put a little ramshackledy room together over here off the roundabout. That was the first music mill. And some of those early records they cut, you can hear truck horns outside. So they make an album. They take it to all the labels, and the labels hate it, viscerally hate it. This is not country. Who the hell do you think you are? Blah, 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 blah. And the guys are ready to go. They need to get back and play their close to their hometown, play the bars, and raise their families. Harold goes, look, I may not know much about this industry, but I know great songs. We've got a pile of them, so they make another record. Most of the labels won't meet with them, and that goes equally nowhere quickly. There's three songs left. Harold goes, I'm going to go bankrupt. Let's just record them so I'll know we gave it to college try. I'll send these last two or three out to anybody that will still listen. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, RCA blows into town and fires everybody at the Nashville label. And they bring in this 20-something kid named Joe Galani, who had brought great pop stars to the label. He wanted to take a little more pop. And there's a cassette sitting on his desk. He pops it in, and it's this group. Get them down here. They work together for a few months. He signs them and changes their name to Alabama. (laughs) And that's where it started. So Harold built this big music mill that you're in now. The room down there was the first 64-track studio. It started out as a 16-track. That's another great story we won't get into today, but how he got one of the first nine Focusrite boards. They weren't going to sell him. He brought enough cash to a meeting. They took him seriously. 
And pretty soon, the next is KT Oslin, Toby Keys, Shania Twain, Billy Ray Cyrus, the Kentucky Headhunters, Polygram, Polydor, Split the Label, Make Harold a Label Head. So you're in one of the few buildings, Motown was like this, Bearsville in New York, where it was the songwriters, the studio, and the record label. And the, create, the creative time in those years was insane. And we're proud to be in it. So, yeah, welcome to the Music Mill. Oh, that's so great. Uh, version 2.1. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, that studio down there sits on tons of white silica sand with the lattice work, and I'm doing the look at the church, look at the steeple thing here, of 9,000 two-by-fours stuck in that sand like this. And so when they blow up something around here and there's a lot of construction, this whole building will move, not that studio. The walls are 18 inches thick because he didn't want car noises in this music mill. And they built that independent and built the rest of the building over it. Now, we've stuck a couple holes in it because we don't use it as a studio, but it's a hell of a room down there. Oh, that's and the very first song ever recorded was the one song they didn't get to on that group, Closer You Get by Alabama. First song ever recorded here. Wow. There's over 60 number ones that we know of recorded or written here. So, Wow, what a great story. The biggest of all time, though, was Achy Breaky Heart. Great friend of mine, an American Indian Vietnam War vet named Don Von Tress, came in and played the publisher Russ Savitz in this thing. And Russ was in a hurry, but he said, Don't finish that with anybody else. And Don wrote it by himself, and it sold 11 million singles. <laughs> Achy Breaky Heart. And it was cut first by the Marcy Brothers called Don't Tell My Heart. That fell off a cliff. And Billy Ray's down here one day. Don plays it for him. They played the song that night in a bar here in Nashville, and it launched their career and Don's career. And so that's the most famous song out of this building, but there's a lot of them. Roy Rogers recorded a record over here. Jimmy Swagger recorded a record. It was crazy what happened back in the 80s. Everybody wanted to record in the digital room. One night, somebody's beating on the door while they're installing this board. Beating on the door. It's a cold winter night. They go out there. The guy's got a coat. Is this guy going to mug us? What? He comes in. It's Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones. I want to watch y'all on this board. And he went back and produced several big, important records in England watching what they did on this board. Over. Wow. And it was analog. It wasn't digital. It was a 64-track analog board. 16-track components plugged into an up-to-64-track motherboard controller in the middle. It got so hot that board, they had to put two half-ton air conditioner units, which are still down there. You could hang cows down there in that room, man. So, so I think you like being around studios. Not necessarily. I'm not a studio guy. I love the history of this one, though. I'm proud of it. Yeah. it's well, You could feel yeah. the sense of it, for yeah. sure. But that's Nashville, everything, everywhere you turn. You want to walk over here? Let me give you another Nashville story. I love it, yeah. All right, so... Right here out my window, see that little gold building over there? Mm -hmm. It's Caddy Corner from us. That's the famous RCA Studio B, where up until the mid-60s, Elvis recorded almost everything. One of my favorite stories, his producer was the great Chet Atkins. Chet was the vice president of RCA Nashville, and he produced almost all the songs. And I think it was a four-track over there. I knew Chet a little bit. I was privileged to know him a little bit. 
Chet was an old country gentleman, and when he could, he got a closing eye because he went to bed at 8 o'clock and got up at 3 his entire life, if he could. About 9 o'clock, you could see Chet's head just, you know. So he calls RCA and goes, look, I like the kid. And a lot of people didn't get this Elvis thing. Nashville didn't embrace him. And he said, we got an 11 o'clock session, late for me. I think he's telling Steve Scholes at RCA this. And he goes, we got five songs. We start at 11. We do those five songs. I don't want a two-hour gospel concert. Let's get this done. 11, they promise him he'll be there. 11.15, 11.30, no Elvis. And Chet gets up to leave. And there's a 19-year-old tape copy boy up there named Felton Jarvis. He threw him the key and said, you do it. They hit it off. They got the five sides, and Felton was his producer pretty much for the rest of his life. <laughs> There's a great book by Peter Goralnik. He did that controversial Lennon book and the two Elvis books. He's a Boston guy. Yeah, a lot of people don't like Goralnik. I worship him because he tells everything, good or bad. And you should see the stories. There's another famous one. So there's this kid, and they're going to cut the song. And I would have been fighting the Presley estate to some degree because they're asking the songwriters for publishing. They would never do that today, but we don't like that. But you want the cut? Give up a piece of the money. And there's some guys that are supposed to do that, and they show up over here. I think it's 1965 one night, and they forgot to do it. And so the kids over there raising hell with him. At the last minute, we got to get publishing. I'm not giving you my publishing. I worship Elvis Presley. It's why I want to do this. He doesn't see Elvis walk in behind him. Now, the record label and the mafia guys don't want Elvis to know any of this. But Elvis looks at him and puts his finger up there like, shh, where the kid can't see him. And they're all like eyeballs, big as teacups, like, we're going to get outed here. And the kid just keeps going on. I love Elvis Presley, but you're not getting my publishing. Give me my song back. I'm leaving. Turns around, walks straight into Elvis, and Presley goes, uh, what's up, man? And, and the kid is Jerry Reed. The song is Guitar Man. Elvis said, uh, the boy keeps his publishing. And it kind of ended that practice. And they sit down, and they're talking. Of course, Reed, nervous as hell, picks up a guitar and starts noodling it. Elvis asked him to play on the record, and that's Jerry Reed playing on Guitar Man. A lot of great stories right over there in that corner building. This is Music Row, and it's kind of changed, sadly, with the developer version of what we see in Nashville these days. That building was WSIX Radio before Bobby Bones. That was the great Jerry House. Doc McGee bought it a few years ago and managed Kiss, Aerosmith, Darius, Hootie, Slayer. You never knew what you were going to see out in this parking lot. Steven Tyler drove up one day on a Harley. We all sang We Are the World together out there. Right over here was John Prine's building. So all of these, a lot of famous things happen in this town on Music Row, right here from where we sit. Oh, wow. What great stories. My God. Yeah. It, does Doc McGee still own that? Doc just sold it. Oh. And I haven't met the new owners yet. Uh, Doc's, I think, semi-retired, but his son is carrying on parts of that business. Doc, uh, I always felt when I ran into Doc over the years that he needed to come out of his shell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what they were bringing on. They figured out licensing. You know, Kiss had almost 5,000 income-producing licenses, and they got money on the front end for them, so... That's why they're so wealthy. That's why Gene made out on it. They, you know, they owned the name and they licensed it for products. Wow. So the Bluebird Cafe and uh, NSAI, 
Tell me how that came about, the uh, purchase of the Bluebird. Well, the Bluebird was built, the Bluebird, the building was there, but Amy Kerwin started it in 1982 because she didn't like greasy food, is my version of this story. She wanted a different place to eat, and it was sort of a lunch place. Nothing happened. They tried dinner and couldn't get arrested. One night, Amy, and they had some bands. They had late night shows, smoking, hard drinking in that little place. Till one night, Amy tried some songwriters. And people were lined all the way up Hillsborough Road. And within several months, it was one show a night, two shows a night. All the young people wanted to play it, so she emerged this audition process that's still in existence today. Taylor Swift, Garth, Keith Urban, all discovered over there, as was every songwriter in town. Because industry folks figured out, we can go over there and hear the songs and hear the artists before anybody does. And it became really the launching pad for so many careers, as it still is today. A lady named, the few people I've ever respected more than her, Erica Wallum Nichols. We worked together. When I first took over NSAI, she was here. <clears throat> but before that, she'd been a waitress with Amy in the early days of the Bluebird. So Amy was doing everything, and in, in 2007, she, I knew something was up because she wanted an appointment. It was too formal. Amy could just come over and hang out anytime she wanted to. Amy, Eric and I are sitting right there, and Amy's sitting right there where, next to where you are, and she goes, do y'all want the bluebird? First words out of her mouth. I'm going to retire. I'm gonna, she basically gave it to us. There was a little bit of a purchase price, but it was ridiculously low. And Amy did it because she gave a damn about the legacy, and I think she knew... With us in general, but Erica in particular, we wouldn't change what she created. We've made some changes, but none that customers or songwriters would ever notice. And so we went quickly past that discussion, and we've run it since January 1, 2008. How much fun is that? Depends on what day it is. It's also a restaurant, so the shows and all that we love, but when the cooler goes out, <laughs> that's the part we've had to learn how to do. Right. Yeah. But it's still uh, active and... Uh... It's better than ever. And look, Erica not only steered it through COVID, she became active in the Save uh, the Shuttered Venue Operators Grants that got some money to clubs like this. Because look... Music industry was the first hit, and we're still not completely recovered from COVID. Touring is back, but everybody can't tour. Venues can only support so much. But Erica kept that club open. There's a guy in Nashville named Butch Spiridon that runs the Nashville Convention and Visitors Corporation. Butch came up with a grant to buy streaming equipment for every venue in Nashville. That helped us. And we just, we picked it up as a community and not only got through COVID, but we read, led some of that national legislative effort. NSA, I wrote the language with Senator Blackburn's office that made every self-employed person eligible for unemployment. The whole industry was working on that, but a Tennessee senator did that and got it in there early and got it passed. So, so the Bluebird is, is better than ever. But it played an important role for other venues like them, and we lost a couple. We, the one that broke my heart was Douglas Corner. That, that, even with the Bluebird, that's probably my favorite venue in town, and a lot of great places closed, and that was sad to see. A lot of Threadgills, other places in Austin, you know, but um, 
that's our challenge for the future is to keep the history of that place in a town that that you know, I've been a little critical about this, and I'll say it again, that needs to pay more attention to the history of why we were called Music City USA in the first place. So you think that in in the midst of development maybe is is taking a back seat well, in people's minds? Well, so if you look at some venues like Station and the Bluebird, there are massive developments coming up next door. And the developer, the one that's next to us, is great. They're friendly to us. But we should have had a conversation of what that looked like 20 years ago. Music Row's gone. People are moving elsewhere because the land's too valuable and the city doesn't give us the incentives I think they should to stay here. So it's a conversation long, long overdue. There have been attempts at it, but we've never really sat down. And I think there's other cities like Memphis and other things that have managed to do that through the years, but it requires some tough political decisions. Are we going to give some sort of special consideration to the history of music in this town or not well you know it's it's a fight that has to be had or a conversation well i'm trying and i've tried through a lot of administrations and we'll keep trying but you know we've already lost some things that are sad for decisions that should have been made several administrations ago if we're telling the truth about sure well bart let's close out and play a little game of uh Desert Island Disc. You know that game? There's only one. Houses of the Holy, Led Zeppelin. If it's one song, it's the Rain song. And we can go from there. If there's a second album, it's Bob Dylan, the one with Tangled Up in Blue, Shelter from the Storm on it. I've missed Blood on the Tracks. Blood on the Tracks. That's the second one. And the third one's Elvis Presley's Greatest Hits with the Gold LeMay suit on it. Those are the three. <laughs> you didn't even flinch. I've done this a long time. Look up here on the wall. Some of my favorite songs, these are all lyrics. Of course, we're an audio thing of the songs written by the artists. My newest one of my favorites on the left over there, Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. And that was written by the artist, the head of Looking Glass, Elliot Lurie. We've become best friends. But truth be told, that's my favorite over there. Long, cool woman in a black dress on a black dress. Oh, my so, God. Yeah. That's amazing. Bart, thank you for being on the This Take was a lot of podcast. fun, Buzz. I want to do this again with you when we can. We'll go do it at the Bluebird next time with Erica, all right? Oh, oh man. wow. Count me uh, in. Yeah. Count me in. Thank you. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 
Travel.com. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals at Ryu Hotels and Resorts in Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central America. And enjoy a selection of exclusive non-stop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 